You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. Shouldn't ask. Good morning. All right, so in session four, we are on question 49. And this section is, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. This is the second article in the creed. Really briefly, last week we talked about the creed not as just like some sort of doctrinal laundry list that we got to go through and make sure we believe everything, but actually the creed is a way for us to see reality. It is a lens through which we can make sense of what is true and what is not true about the world that we live in, the God we worship, and who we are. This is why it's so important for us to actually study this creed. So with that, um, question 49. I will ask the question, and then we'll all read the response together. If you have your catechism books open, let's begin with question 49. Who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the eternal word and son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. He took on human flesh to be the savior and redeemer of the world, the only mediator between God and fallen man. What do we notice here that jumps out to us? There's quite a bit. The only mediator. So there's not another, right? How is it that Jesus mediates for us, though? Is he just like a really good guy that we look to for advice and like mediation? Help us connect with God the Father? What makes... Jesus so special that he can be the only mediator. <coughs> That's right. Another mediator of some sort. Right, his death makes a way for us. But notice what the answer is actually pointing to that makes him a mediator. He took on human flesh. So his incarnation, we have a big resurrection we have a big nativity icon back there that I love. Um, and really, Christmas and nativity, it's actually the feast of the incarnation. And for a lot of us who've grown up in the church, the incarnation's not played much of a role in our understanding of what it means to be saved or to be a Christian. But it actually is, has everything to do with our salvation. And I should say, the incarnation, well, no, I don't need to say that actually because it's specifying really clearly, taking on human flesh. Especially in the Eastern Church, in Eastern Orthodoxy, you'll see an emphasis on the incarnation as being salvific because God himself is entering into the sin of humanity and dignifying it, redeeming it in his incarnation. Yes, that incarnation includes the death of the, on the cross, which is absolutely necessary, but there's this much bigger scope of the way God is actually coming to save us. And it's really, it kind of tilts salvation on a different axis when you include the incarnation, I think, because now it's not so heavy on, do I feel guilty enough or do I feel the way the cross and compelled to respond to it? Um, it's more than just the cross. It's actually this really wonderful story of God acting first on your behalf long before you were even aware of what was going on, entering into your situation, entering into your humanity and taking it onto himself. And when you watch the whole scope of the salvation story, who Jesus is, you see him entering in humanity, dying for the sins of humanity, and then what's the other side of this whole story? Does he stay on earth, or does he go? He ascends to the Father, which is also salvific. Why? Because Jesus is still humanity. 
now in the presence of God the Father and the Spirit. He has taken our human nature literally out of the depths of captivity and sin, has died for it, atoning for our sin, and now has joined our humanity in the communion of the Holy Trinity. Right now, this is a mind blower. I I say this all the time, and it still blows my mind. There's a human being in the Holy Trinity, in the heavenly realm. There's a human being with flesh. There's someone with teeth and hair in the presence of God the Father. And what? And scars, yeah. That is not often part of our understanding of salvation, is it? God took on human flesh to be the savior and the redeemer of the world. And it's because when we zoom out and we see this whole life of who Jesus is, uh, not only is that profound, but that's the basis upon which we go, he is the only mediator between us and God. Not just because it's like a sentimental idea, but he's actually, to, in, our, in his humanity, brought us in communion with God the Father and the Spirit, and therefore is our mediator. Like he's literally interceding for us in his humanity next to God the Father. Does that make sense? This is beyond sentiment or idea or philosophy. We have, we have a human being in the presence of God who's mediating for us, literally. That's amazing. Okay, question 50. And some of this I'm going to leave here because we're picking up the rest of it later. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So um, if there's something you feel like we got to talk about this, please raise your hand. I'm happy to address it, but I'm going to keep moving. Question 50. What does Jesus mean? Jesus means God saves and is taken from the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua. In Jesus, God has come to save us from the power of sin and death. Let's keep it going. What does Christ mean? Christos is a Greek word meaning anointed one. The Old Testament kings, priests and prophets were anointed with oil. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit to perfectly fulfill these roles. And he rules now as God's prophet, priest, and king over his church and all creation. Yeshua, Joshua. When we think of Joshua, he's the conqueror, right? Entering into the land, defeating its occupants in obedience to God. The one that, the one under which, through which God saves us, this new Joshua is Jesus, Yeshua. And the land is full of sin and death and the enemies of God. And Jesus, this Joshua, this new Joshua, goes on this conquest to rid the land of its evil occupants, those who are the enemies of God, clearing a way for us. Christos is not the last name of Jesus, but it actually is a term meaning the anointed one. Like in the Old Testament when they would anoint with oil, or do you hear David talking about, I'm not gonna lay hands on God's anointed one, Saul. The ones that God has chosen for a purpose. And this purpose of Jesus, this Christ, Jesus the Christ, we could say, he is um, the summary of all the kings in the Old Testament. When we read kings and we see these kings, these rulers, who had power over a real realm, over real people who were administering that power, um, we actually see a glimpse of who Jesus is in these kings. Of course, these kings are not the perfect king, which Jesus is, but we see these kind of figures. A couple weeks ago, we talked about this idea of seeing figures in the Old Testament that were like signposts pointing us to Jesus. Topology is the 
fancy word, these types in the Old Testament that revealed its archetype, its perfect type in Jesus. In Kings, you see this. Priests, same thing. The Levitical priests and even the prophets, all of them in their own unique way are pointing to the anointed one. All of them were anointed with oil, but all of them are pointing to the anointed one, the one who is actually, they are all uh, um, small reflections of in their own way. Who anointed Jesus? The Holy Spirit anointed Jesus. Do you all know what, when in the chronology of Christ's life this happened? When was Jesus anointed by the Spirit? Was that? Baptism, yeah. We, see, we talked about this last week when we're like talking about how do we know that the Trinity is a thing? Well, here, look at the baptism of Jesus. You have this theophany, this picture of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in this moment, Jesus is anointed by the Spirit to perfectly fulfill, fulfill these roles of king and priest and prophets. But his reign and his rule, unlike these other kings and priests and prophets, is not just like uh, this one particular application or this one scope, Jesus is, like we're talking about, Kelsey, his, his kingship, his, his role as a prophet, his role as a priest is cosmic. There's nothing that isn't included under his reign and rule, which is really incredible news. There's nothing outside of his care. All right, question 52. Why is Jesus called the Father's only son? Jesus alone is God the Son, co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He alone is the image of the invisible Father, the one who makes the Father known. He is now and forever will be incarnate as a human, bearing his God-given human name. The Father created and now rules all things in heaven and earth through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Anybody have Colossians 1, 15 ready? Can someone dig it up? Uh, have someone look up Hebrews 1, 1 through 5. And someone look up John 1, 18, those references there. These are juicy. I love these ones. Mm. I'm going to talk for a minute, and I'm going to ask for people to read. Jesus is the only Son of God. These are really key terms in your catechism. Co-equal and co-eternal. Did you all know that there is no um, subjugation or uh, like inequality in the Holy Trinity? They're co-equal with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, Jesus. So in some of our minds, I think not on purpose, but sometimes we think of Jesus as like subordinate to the Father or even the Spirit subordinate to Jesus. Like there's this kind of imaginary hierarchy of inequality, of importance even. You'll even hear, and if you really want to know what I'm talking about, listen to the way you pray or the way others pray, and you, you might hear this unintentional preference that isn't addressing the co-equal nature of who God is. And I know it's not like an ugly, like, I want to be a heretic today, you know. It's, <laughs> but, it is a, but it's something to pay attention to. They are co-equal. And, check this out, co-eternal. Jesus was not created. He didn't have um, a beginning, but is co-eternal. So before, we're gonna get into this, so I'm just gonna touch on it, because there's a question coming up that, that talks about this. 
before the foundations of the earth were laid, God, who is, Jesus, the Son, is, Holy Spirit is, has always been, co-eternal with God the Father. There was a point in human history in which we can point to and say the incarnation, begotten, Jesus is begotten, enters into humanity in the timeline. There is that moment in time, but Jesus as fully God is co-eternal. He, he doesn't have a beginning. If he, was, if he had a beginning and an end, he would be less than God in some way, some characteristic, some knockoff of divinity. But instead, and by the way, um, we're going to read how this comes through us, to us in Scripture, but this, was like, this is a really historically contended point. Um, before, the, for instance, the Council of Nicaea. You have people like Arius, who we're going to talk about in a little bit, coming up with different understandings of who Jesus was as not co-equal or co-eternal with the Father. And the church throughout its history has gone to great depths to defend this case. And believe it or not, those heresies are, though we as a church have spoken and it's been settled, those heresies still come to bite us all the time. We uh, will treat either one of the members of the Holy, persons of the Holy Trinity in these kind of less than co-equal or less than co-eternal ways. And again, if you look at the way we pray, you might see some of those, um, you might see some indications there. Who has Colossians 1.15? Go ahead, Crystal. That would seem to lead us to think that as a firstborn of all creation that Jesus is created, wouldn't it? Huh, how do we work that out? Well, he's also the image of the invisible God. So right in this one passage, we see both aspects of this co-eternal, invisible, eternal God, and yet, the, 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 like, uh, there, even the rest of Colossians 1 actually paints a much fuller picture. In him, all things were created. Through him and by him, all things were created. In fact, he holds all things together. Jesus, this image of the invisible God. So that we see even in scripture, and you could see why the early church really wrestled with this. This is a paradox. How do we deal with who Jesus is? This, or the study of Christology is what this is called. The identity, the person of Jesus. Is he man or is he God? And how do we work those things out? You can make that case because it also says he um, has taken first place among all things, right? Um, but I think it's probably, I, I don't know if I want to get into this because this is like, we'll deal with this on Holy Trinity Sunday or something <laughs> when we read the Athanasian Creed. Um, can I press pause on that? Because that's a, that's a juicy one. Let's leave that on the table. Hebrews 1, 1 through 5, who has that? Oh, go ahead. This is a vision, that, like what we're seeing in Hebrews here, and it, what's woven through here is this like priestly image of Jesus. But what we're seeing here is, and I want to point this out, is a very cosmic understanding of who Jesus is, especially in Colossians and now Hebrews. Um, yes, Jesus is human. He's our friend. But there is, uh, but this eternal word of God, Jesus, the son of God, uh, this is also him. He is this cosmic person of God's trinity through which and by which all the created order has come to be. And the only reason we know anything of God and his existence is because of Christ, the word of, I should say, the eternal word of God. All revelation comes through him. Anything we know of God is only 
possible through this person of Jesus. Karl Barth would say, actually, we know nothing of God apart from Christ the Son, which is an interesting claim to make when you think of all the Old Testament that doesn't have Christ the Son. But the church, when we read canonically or with the Old and New Testaments, we see that even in the Old Testament, Augustine would say Christ is hidden in the Old. The New Testament's hidden in the Old, and the Old Testament is revealed in the New. Like the meaning of what the prophets and everyone said in the Old Testament is actually coming to, our, to the forefront, visible to us, make sensible to us through Christ. But we only see that in the New Testament. It's fascinating. Jamie? I, don't, I would say, I would, I would back off of saying that's Jesus functioning through them, but I would say that their function is indicative of who Jesus is. Like they're pointing to him. Absolutely. Yeah. Like they're, it's, what I'm trying to say is those kings, the prophets, the priests, they're actually pulling back the curtain on who Jesus is for us. At their best. What God has intended for them to do, not at their worst. In their worst, we go, they're, they're, is there a prophet who is like God? Is there a king who is like God? Is there a priest who is like God? No. But even in the, what, we've see, what has been revealed through their earthly ministry, these human beings, we see these glimpses of who Jesus is, the one who is to come, these, these types that are actually going to be fulfilled when Jesus comes and we see him, prophet, priest, king. Who has John 1.18? Go ahead, Stephen. No one has ever seen God. Well, haven't people seen Jesus? Read the rest of that again. No one's ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. It seems like that passage is saying two different things at the same time. No one has ever seen God, but God has made himself known through the one who sits at his right hand. Who's that? Jesus. And so um, this, this is like, uh, this is a huge, um, there's so many like little landmines that I want to spelunk into with y'all. This, this one is like the understanding of theophany, that God can be revealed or seen. Um, can, God can, no one has ever seen God. We even had this in our readings today. And yet, when we look at the face of Jesus, Jesus himself tells us, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's the image of the invisible God. And yet, even when we look on his face, God is still incomprehensible to us. We see him in Jesus. The fullness of God is in Jesus. But for the viewer, the ones who are looking, this is like just the tip of the iceberg. There's, there's no way we could ever comprehend the fullness of who God is, even when we're staring at him right in the face. So there's, again, we're going to see paradoxes like this throughout Scripture, throughout the Catechism. Um, get comfortable with this, because this is just us juggling uh, the unknowable God who's made himself known to us. There's just these paradoxes of the unknowable God taking on flesh, the infinite God becoming finite for ourselves, for our sakes. Uh, this is like the, the, this, this conversation, this is why Christology is so difficult. And it actually has everything to do with everything else in the Christian life. For instance, sacraments. Again, here it is. If you have um, a, a worldview in which sacraments seems impossible or unreasonable, I wouldn't address your theology of sacraments. I would address your understanding of who Jesus is. Why is that? 
Because in Jesus, what's being revealed to us is something that seems impossible, unbelievable. The unseeable is now being seen in him. The invisible, unseeable God is now being put before us in a material way. That sounds a lot like sacraments, doesn't it? So the church has always built its understanding of sacraments upon Christology. In fact, everything, you could argue, is built on Christology, what we understand of Jesus. Um, Okay, what I'm trying to do right now is like stretch and destroy all categories of theology in your head, and then I'm going to bring it back together in a few questions. Everybody feel destroyed? No? Stretch a little bit? Okay, good. Um, uh, We already talked about, we talked about that. Okay. Question 53. What do you mean when you call Jesus Christ Lord? I acknowledge Jesus' authority over the church and all creation, over all societies and their rulers, and over every aspect of my personal, social, professional, recreational, and family life. I surrender my life to him and seek to live every part of my life in a way that pleases him. They went to uh, some, some extent, some detail to make sure we understood what Jesus is Lord over in our life. I think in this question lies like the biggest challenge for us as people who want to be Christians. Like we're Christians, we follow Jesus. Um, but Christians have a life completely under the lordship of Jesus. And I'll tell you right now, my whole life isn't always, and probably even now in some ways, under the lordship of Jesus. So to read a definition of, Sean, why do you call Jesus Lord? Well, because he reigns over every aspect of your life, meaning there is not a private part of your life that Jesus is not in charge of. There's not an area of your life that you can say, not here, Jesus, you don't get to say. We talked about how he's king, like comprehensively. And we, that makes sense in the world. Like, Jesus reigns, right? I see people, especially like during presidential elections, you'll see the, like, you may be president, but Jesus is still king over everything. Um, but what's so fascinating to me about that is how easy it is for us to say that out there and not actually mean it in here. You know what I mean? Does Jesus have kingship over our tongue and the things we're saying publicly like that? My personal life? my social life, my professional, recreational, family life. We could, we could even say, reading back a question, because he is an incarnate human being, Jesus has um, lordship even over our bodies. So what we do with our body, if, we could, if I just take it there for a second, because this is like just really pressing, and we're not afraid to talk about this, but like our sexuality is just not something we get to roll the dice on or just kind of run after what we think works for us. Just like our jobs, our recreational lives, our family lives, like the way we treat people, all of this comes under his lordship. And that's so tough because we find ourselves in a position where we say, Jesus, you, you reign over this. This is, my body doesn't even belong to me. It's yours. It's yours. So Jesus, what do you want to do with this? Which is a totally different way of approaching all of the hot topics in culture right now, it's not like, well, are you a Republican? Then this is what you should do. Or if you're a Democrat, here's what you, nah, Christians, we should not be so interested with like 
partisan kind of labels like that. What we're interested in is, is Jesus king over this? And how would he, how would he have us use this or that? How would he have us live then if he's in charge? If he's calling the shot, what, what's, it, what's the play going to be? What, yes. Sorry, I'm preaching. This one or the earlier one? Because I did two today, though. Okay, all right. I don't know about the other one. It's fine. Yeah. I knew someone was going to go there. Man, this is a tough one. Yeah, I think I get your question. If, G- if Jesus is Lord over every aspect, then what do we do with like nationalism or national identity? How do we participate civically in our country in a, in a way that's still godly and biblical, but yet not co-opted, right, by those powers? Um, I would say that if Jesus is actually Lord, if he's truly Lord, then no one else is. how does this play out in our lives? It actually frees us up as Christians to engage every political, every social, every financial structure that opposes the reign and rule of God. We are free to engage it. And we're free to suffer for opposing it. And whatever flack we get for it, if Jesus is king, it's okay. But we are free to engage Anything that obscures Jesus' perfect reign in our lives and in the lives of other human beings, the church shouldn't be able to help itself but oppose those things and to work against them. And not in trite little cheap ways. Like, I don't mean go tweeting. There are way more costly ways of opposing these, these structures that obscure the lordship of Jesus than tweeting and Facebooking and, I don't know, blogging. Those are not, like, bad things. I just think um, they're really inexpensive for us. They're very... They're not, it's not good enough, actually. And there's so much of it these days. I'm like, um, actually, I was talking with a friend recently about this with regard to social injustice. And I told him, like, look, I see you guys, and this, nobody in this room, it's a, a, a clergy colleague. I mean, I see you guys speaking up on Facebook all the time. And I wonder, what are you, like, I told him, it just kind of bugs me because I want to know what are you actually doing in the church that God's given you with the people that are in your face? Like, you could be vindicated. I mean, maybe, they're saying great things, but I want to know, like, what's the deal? What are you doing? So the who's my neighbor thing that we're having is a way for us to go, we're going to create a space where we can, um, we can engage in those divisions that obscure the lordship of Christ in our life. We're going to create a space in which we're safe, where Jesus is king, where we can engage those things and work that out, come up with some answers maybe, or some better postures at least, better questions. Yeah, we pray for the president. And what that does for me is say, these men are currently the people that have the power, etc. But even they are under the influence of God. And so we pray that they will do according to God's will. Right. And um, I, I think for us to like honestly pray for our leaders and for God's mercy on them actually changes the posture of our heart from hatred to God, I am no different. And like include me on your healing mercies. 
because I know I don't understand them, I may disagree with them, or all the things we pray for. Um, we should be, when we pray for our enemies, we actually realize we're actually not very different from them in so many ways. Maybe we are, but not in the way in which, like, we're all sinful, that we're in that camp. In terms of, like, having the American flag in the sanctuary, um, I'm not going to, I have um, personal opinions about that, so I'm going to try and, like, give you, um, I don't know, a more, I don't know, mature, wise thing. I'm going to try. I, I'm actually... I know, why start now? I'm uncomfortable with that because I think it obscures, um, especially now, maybe it's not always been this way. It's hard for me to imagine that. But especially now, it seems that it it makes confusing or obscures that Christ is king and there is no um, equal. And and it also, historically, I think, has been really confusing for the church that's been caught in really difficult situations when they can't discern the difference between the kingdom of God and their own national pride. I think that could be confusing. Um, if you look in the Episcopal hymnal, that well, you don't have any, but there's like all these um, national, you know, songs, and that's cool. Um, I, I I think it's super confusing. I wouldn't process the American flag, not out of that I don't love America. I love our country. I grew up in the military. My dad's in the arm, uh, the Air Force. He's been serving his whole life, practically my whole life. Um, so I, I love deeply, deeply love my country, and that's actually for that reason that I want it to come under the lordship of Jesus and engage the ways that it's not, you know, um, but with tons of humility and respect. Um, to others. Uh, the last thing, now I don't want to talk about that. Let's move, let's, any, anything else about that? That's a really uh, juicy question, right? And in fact, I, I would say uh, if, well, I won't give you a book reference because no one's, who cares? But I have all this conversation in my head. Sorry, you're hearing snippets of it. When we celebrate Eucharist and we're lifting up the bread and the wine, to me, this is actually a very profoundly political statement. This is saying, if you want to know the politics of Jesus, if you want to know what it looks like to go into the world and live as a conduit of his love, it looks like this. It looks like being broken and poured out for the life of others. And the, and the problem with that isn't that it, it just doesn't ca- campaign well, you know? Um, but that's nevertheless the call that we have. So I think it's actually all political. Not in like partisan ways, but in like the fact that it has, it brings to bear um, implications for our, our social life together. Okay, seriously, let's move on. Uh, where are we at? 54? Okay, here we go. The incarnation. 54. How was Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit? Through the creative power of the Holy Spirit, the eternal Son assumed a fully human nature from his mother, the Virgin Mary, in personal union with his fully divine nature at the moment of conception in Mary's womb. I'm still thinking about the political part of this. Sorry. You will never hear um, uh, like a marriage ceremony say something like, by the power invested in me by the state of Texas. You'll never hear that from me or anything in the prayer book because we just kind of don't care about that power. Um, To make this point, one time someone asked me about it, I said, okay, well, by the power invested in me by Christ and his church, (laughs) you know, I pronounce you. Um, There... Not that that's like completely invaluable, like the social life, the, the, the um, yeah, our social ordering. Not that that's unimportant, but that um, the church is concerned with God's kingdom and the things that um, he's like revealed to us. And so we celebrate those things at the church and it has implications for the way we live and organize ourselves in the world. I'm so sorry. How was Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit? Through the creative power of the Holy Spirit, the eternal son assumed a fully human nature from his mother. Jesus 
God chose Mary to enter into humanity. God chose the flesh of Mary to enter into human history, to take on and dignify human flesh. God chose Mary. That's fascinating. James, how do you have a question about this? <laughs> so simple, my man. Yes, sir. Ooh, hey, so um, the Hail Mary people, I got an issue with that. That is scripture. Read Luke chapter one. It's literally coming off the pages of scripture. Hail Mary. That's what the angel said to her. Full of grace. The angel is saying this to her. Is, is she special? Well, did God choose your flesh to enter into humanity? I mean, I don't know if that makes you special or not, but being full of grace You see the mystery here? Um, so th- so where, whereas you would see like Roman Catholic devotion to Mary and praying the Hail Mary, or there's many other prayers, um, it's, it's really just like praying scripture, praying the Bible. And if you're evangelical and you've got a, like a Bible church background, then you should be all about um, the Hail Mary. Oh, yeah, well, why, why do you think, oh, that part in particular? So you don't have a problem with Hail Mary full of grace? Blessed are you among women. Blessed are the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. All right, fine. <sighs> I thought you'd take the bait. Why is she the mother of God? Why do we call her? Does anyone have Luke 1, 34 and 35? This cut out of the evangelical Bible? Come on, let's open, up, open that up. Okay, go ahead. Tim's got it, yeah. So why is Mary the, every, we all understand what, what Tim just read, I think, right? Why is Mary the, the mother of God, or why is she referred to as the mother of God? If you have an issue with that, like, no big deal, don't call her mother of God. But if we ask seriously the question of who is Jesus, who's his mother? Mary. That's, I mean, it's not like some crazy statement that's like, ooh, Catholic or something. Someone calls you Catholic, you go, oh, thank you. I love being part of the whole church throughout history and globally. What a compliment to say you are in on the church. So there's, there's, we don't have to have, can I just say this to my evangelical friends here? We don't have to have an allergy to this. We don't have to be afraid of Marian language, honoring her, celebrating her. Um, and in fact, can I just also say, I bet one of the reasons that as a, as a church, we have such a difficult time with um, the place of women and the role in women and the dignity of women might be because we have like utterly taken the one woman in scripture that is most dignified and put her away out of fear of being too Roman Catholic. Like, of course you're gonna get more of that when you put the Virgin Mary away. You're shaking your head, Eric. Why do you disagree? Fair point. You would see the Roman Catholic Church being like four women... Uh, not, not necessarily. No, I wouldn't say that at all. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church, maybe in a contemporary sense, that might be hard for you to see, um, but I would say quite the opposite. Um, if you're talking about women are excluded from being priests, that's, that's a whole, yes, it's related, but let's just put that aside for a second. If you're talking about women being dignified, um, I think they actually are doing a really 
good job at that, even historically. Women have, the women saints that we have throughout history, we have the, the church to thank for that. We have like women saints. Um, okay, we have orders of women in uh, like monastic orders. We have a place, the church has created space for single women who don't want to bear children or have been called by God to serve the church um, to be dignified and to be um, like empowered on behalf of the church as instruments of the church. We've created these communities for women. And in fact, these, this, these orders of women have gone on to um, start universities and hospitals and basically everything that's like good about society. I think it's, it to some degree could point to how the church historically has created these spaces for women to be dignified and protected, no less. Especially, Eric, when you think about if you are not married in history, you are basically like screwed. The church has actually created a place for unmarried women to be dignified and empowered. Yes, the church has made tons of mistakes. So this, that's not like, but I don't think that overwhelms um, the, the historically what the church has done to actually create these spaces for women. I'm gonna argue with myself on the other side and say, yes, it has been a very patriarchal history in the church. And yes, there's been like a ton, terrible things have been done to women. Absolutely. But I don't think that, and I would think you would agree with me, is the heart of God, nor is it the heart of what God intends for his church. In that way, the church should repent. But we do see, on the other hand, these little glimmers where uh, the beauty of women and their role in our life and in the church has like been dignified. And I'm just saying, we need more of that. And one of the things that I think, one of the, let me say it this way, let me back up the whole thing and say, if we're going to look for a place to inspire our witness to the dignity of women, I think it ought to be Mary. At least. Mary, the mother of Jesus. She gives us like the shining beacon of, of like something about what it means to be a woman. It's like really beautiful. Sorry, I, hold on. I'll get to you, Kelsey. Um, Go ahead, Christine. Growing up in an home, and my son was thinking about becoming Catholic in my early 20s, I understood the devotion of Mary Yeah. And it just seems kind of like random and like the priest does it to everybody and I mean I've been in those I situations too. Like, I, I like as an Anglican I love I, I want to embrace all the different parts of our Anglicanism, but I don't want to say prayers that yeah. focus on Mary when Jesus is the one I should pray to and say, I'm a sinner, I need help, God. Totally. Like, that's so that's what my mm-hmm. hangout comes with the Hail Mary means I don't want to say it after Totally. I wouldn't say it, I would acknowledge, she's amazing. Can you imagine she was chosen out of all history? Right, right, right. To bear the mother of God. Mm. Or the son of God, whatever you want to say it. Yeah, and so I, I'm not commending to you guys to go pray the Hail Mary. I'm not saying you, need, you should go do that. But I didn't think you were, by the way. Okay, good. But if one of you um, was like praying the Hail Mary, I would talk to you about what you think this, the Hail Mary is actually, like why you pray it, what it means for you. But I, I, but I wouldn't harass you about it. I know there's plenty of Anglicans who... Um, who, who will pray that in, in actually a really beautiful, godly way, in a way that points, because really when you're hailing Mary, you're hailing the incarnation. So it's really not about Mary, but about the incarnation of Christ. Um, and yeah, there's so much to say there. Um, even Roman Catholic um, 
use of the Hail Mary, if you were like the folk use of the Hail Mary in Roman Catholic culture, um, it, it departs in a lot of ways. Our experience of that, it departs from what the church actually teaches them about that. Big surprise, right? Like practice is different than doctrine. Um, but like praying to all the saints or praying the Hail Mary, you are not, um, you, it is like a pray for me like I'd go to you and say pray for me, Christy. Their communion of saints, the living and the dead, um, is like fair game to, to ask someone to pray for you. That's, where, that's the imagination from which this comes. And Mary, this one full of grace, um, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death, is um, an appeal to the communion of saints, not as a mediator, but as a, a, a saint that it can intercede with you. Um, our only mediator is Jesus. That's, that's like not a, up, for, up for grabs at all. But we appeal to this communion of saints to pray with us. Um, and, and we even, you'll notice, pray for the dead. Ooh, getting in a sketchy territory here. Okay, we can't go off track. Kelsey. Yeah. It may have been obscured to them for a long time, right? Obviously. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's a good point. Jamie, did you have a point? Oh, I saw, I saw a hand. Okay. Okay, let's 55. Let's, uh, let's do... Two more questions. Let's get to 56, and we'll be done for the day. Was Mary the only human parent of Jesus? Yes, Mary is held in honor, for she submitted to the will of God and bore the Son of God as her own son. However, after God told Joseph of Mary's miraculous conception, Jesus took sorry, his wife, and they raised Jesus as their son. Joseph took Mary as his wife and raised Jesus as their son. Question 56. What is the relationship between Jesus' humanity and his divinity? <laughs> We're going to open up a huge discussion with this one. Let's answer. Jesus is both fully and truly God and fully and truly human. The divine and human natures of Jesus' person may be distinguished but can never be separated, changed, or confused. All that Jesus does as a human being, he also does as God. And before he ever became human, he was eternally living and active within the unity of the Holy Spirit. Some biblical references there, but also the definition of Chalcedon, which you can look up, uh, an early council of the church that helps um, clarify and answer and settle some of these questions about, was Jesus fully God or fully man? We would say as the church, yes, fully God fully man. He's not, for instance, half God, half human. He is not, as some heresies would say, um, human, who, and then gained divinity 
Arius would say, when he was like anointed or something, like he graduated to divinity status. Nope, that's not the case either. He was also, when crucified, he actually died in his humanity uh, and was not replaced or swapped out with some decoy, some poor soul, which some people believe, some heresies and even other world religions believe that about Christianity. That is not the case. Um, What we want to see here, what we want to come to see here is this relationship between Jesus's humanity and divinity is fully and truly one, fully God, fully man. Can I just say, and the reason this is like so critical for our understanding of what it means to be a Christian, because if it was, if it was anything different than this or anything less than this, we would not be saved. Come at me, bro. That's so true. Why? Because humanity needed to be redeemed. Not a knockoff of humanity, but humanity, fully, fully human. And the only one who had the power to do such a thing was divinity, was God. So in his divinity, he took on humanity that he would redeem our humanity by his divine power. Can I say it that way? That's like really confusing, isn't it? Y'all see that? He has to enter into our situation. I preached about this if you're here. He has to enter into the human situation because there has to be nothing left uh, that he is redeeming. Everything about humanity, Jesus has fully entered into and all the while not negotiated away, not compromised in any way his full divinity. He's entering into humanity fully divine and by the power of his divinity redeemed the whole thing and has now unified it in the Holy Trinity as a human being. It's critical that we have both in view when we talk about Jesus for that very reason, for, our, for the sake of our salvation. Um, one of the, I'll just finish with this, one of the images that we see in Jesus' baptism is him entering into the Jordan River. And this is understood traditionally, um, one way at least the fathers interpret this, which is I love, is it's beautiful, is he, the water is this old Jewish um, symbol of like the womb of creation. If you look at Genesis 1, you have like the waters of the deep and God's spirit hovering over it, his ruach, his spirit. Um, and from it, all things have been created. Um, or not from it, sorry. That's the eternal word of God from which all things have been created. But you see this like symbol of the waters of the deep being the place in which like the womb of creation. So when Jesus enters the water at the Jordan, he's in a way entering, re-entering the womb of creation. Y'all with me on this? And when he comes out of the waters is actually like redeeming. He is leading the charge of redemption over all of creation when he comes out of the water. And it would, I mean, other people, other human beings have been, have been ritually cleansed. What makes this such a big deal? This is the Lamb of God. This is the Son of God. This is God. The Son entering into creation and redeeming it. And so when people come to us and say, what does it mean to be saved? What is salvation? It's really hard for us to do anything else. It should be very hard for us, I think, to tell any other story than like who Jesus is. Because wrapped up in his story is the definition of what it means to be saved. Um, I remember sharing my faith with someone who was saying, I need to be more spiritual. I, need, I think maybe I should be a Christian. And so they said, tell me why I should be a Christian. And so I told them, um, I, didn't, I didn't actually address any of their questions. I just began telling them about who Jesus was and what he was doing. 
And I know that it kind of feels like this sometimes when people are like, what's it gonna do for me? But when we address people who are like, I need a fix, and you say, Jesus is the son of God. <laughs> and he has come to, on our behalf, to like redeem your life. And you didn't even know about him. You didn't even earn him. Or like there's nothing, God out of his great love created all things and is like redeeming all things through Jesus. And this is news. This is what's happening. Do you, you want in on that? It doesn't address like their felt needs. I know right away. But salvation has to be placed in that context because otherwise what we win them with, we're going to win them too. If we tell them your life's going to be so much better and Jesus is going to meet that felt need, then guess what? When they show up to church every Sunday, they're going to want that felt need to be met. And when they come into the reality of like mature Christianity and realize like, oh, my felt needs aren't always being met, they're going to be really let down. It's not much to hold their commitment of faith. But when we understand who Jesus is and when we can tell that story, we give people a much stronger context to understand salvation and a much stronger story to enter into. Their life fits into his, not the other way around. Does that make sense? So it's so important for us to understand who Jesus is in that way. Okay, let me pray for us and we'll be done. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, thank you for the ways that you have redeemed us. Thank you that you have come into our midst. You have like scripture says, literally pitched your tent in our neighborhood. You've gotten to know us, that we can call you by your human name. That even still you have said you are present with us. Jesus, you are amazing. How wonderful you are. We pray that you would continue to walk with us, lead us, call us to yourself. Stretch out your banner of kingship over every aspect of our lives. Help us to recognize and listen for your voice. That through us, your love would reach our neighbors and our coworkers and everyone that we come in contact with you. Have mercy on us, Lord. We pray in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, friends. If you have any questions, um, Tim is going to stay a little while to just answer any questions. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.